Enjoy Spectacles, a pop culture podcast with a mug of mulled wine and your family all around you. And if you don't have a family, what is wrong with you? You sicken me. Unloved piece of scum. God. Subhuman. For most people who celebrate Christmas, it's a time for sitting around the television, turning your brain off, watching all your old favourite family flicks with loved ones, never minding whether the films are corny or silly or rammed with product placement that will eventually condition the little ones in the room to become cogs in a hyper-consumerist society. Nah, it's about letting the familiar colours and sounds lull you into festive tranquility as you bask in the glow of your family. Unless you're us, the Spectacles podcast, in which case it's a time for obsessively unpicking what the hell so-called family entertainment even is, scrutinising what qualifies as good, what qualifies as bad. Are they problematic? Are they toxically reinforcing hegemonic family ideals that for many are impossible to uphold and downright unrepresentative of their dysfunctional family dynamics? Merry Christmas, bitches. My name's Eva. My name's Tom. Hello, I'm Stephen. And our first question is... What exactly is a family film? So, let's start off our dissection of what the family film is with the question, what is a family? Stephen, what's a family? Um, is family the, the nuclear family? So, the two parents, uh, any number of children, 2.5 children, uh, live together in a house. As we all know, everyone has that exact setup. Yeah. Um, yep. Shall we problematize that? Oh, yeah. (laughs) First of all, though, what what is a family in your eyes? Um, I think think Stephen's kind of gotten to the crux of what the family of the... Uh, of the audience that the the so-called family film is going for. It's... um, it's supposed to appeal to, to all ages, but it's ages that align with a kind of 50s nuclear family picture of dad, mom, uh, the adults, you know, and then you've maybe got a teenager, uh, a younger one, uh, maybe there's grandparents too, um, and there's there's something in that for, for all of them. That's probably got a nice cushy job in digital marketing yeah mum works out at the pta yeah mum mum uh is a stay-at-home wife but yes. she does have a little internet business as yes. well mum has to have a little business because she's yeah. a working woman but also she's she, she 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 does spend most of her time in the house yeah yeah editing I'm, her mommy blog yeah exactly and if, if anyone's seen um a, the, the recent uh cine world adverts that's kind of who i'm thinking of so I think in contemporary times, our, our modern family is um, black dad, white mum, cute little inter... Uh, Asian child. Yeah, <laughs> little Asian child. Two, two uh, sort of mixed race children, and then Mary Poppins comes along to look after them so mum and dad can go to Cineworld. What's, <laughs> what's family to you, Tom? Uh, anything from, well, four people related by blood... And it can be anything on the spectrum between uh, four people who deeply love and like each other and full-on Stockholm Syndrome. Um, uh, both of which are celebrated equally and indeed treated equally by cinema, mm-hmm. cool. which is mainly what we want to cover. So, 
Okay, well, speaking of when I said um, it's to do with all ages, but there's actually, when we see all ages, we mean like specific brackets of age. Um, and this kind of stems from this idea that certain people of a certain age and a certain status, in this, in this case, the nuclear family, so, you know, mum and dad are like 30s, 40s, and they're, mm. uh, they're just, they're, there's just the, there was this kind of umbrella age of adult where you're, I don't know, and uh, teenagers like certain things. And this all stems from uh, chromonormativity, which is um, a concept I learned about when I was studying queer theory, uh, funnily enough. So I'm going to give quite a bastardized definition, which the idea of chromonormativity is that you, we as, uh, as humans in our society, we aspire to have aligned our social accomplishments inverted commas, within an age bracket that is kind of geared by biology to an extent. So for instance, your first kiss round about the age of 12, young teen, uh, most people lose their virginity late teens, early 20s kind of thing. Uh, be married or settled 30s, 30-ish. Have children sooner rather than later. Now, obviously, in our modern world, these last two ones are in, are being challenged. We're living longer. People are having it's becoming more normalized, not not entirely normalized yet to have kids later on in life. I still think there's a there's an idea that if probably because of if you have them younger, then you'll be able to be grandparents sooner, and because uh, that's what biology wants. Um, and uh, we find it we find it strange when uh, stark subversions of these norms take place. So, for instance, someone who loses their virginity at the age of sixty is it's not just unusual. There's a kind of there's yeah. a there's a discomfort with it. Yeah, I, I um, sorry. We're probably going to unpack this more, but I was thinking as well of um, Susan Boyle, as much as she was renowned for her unexpected singing voice. Uh, there was a very big deal made about uh, what was possibly even a joke she made about never having been kissed at the age of 48. Mm -hmm. This is a very, per this is completely personal. Her personal life affects us in no way, but there's a discomfort to that. Um, I was going to say something about Harold and Maud, but th that's just that's just a film that I like that I want to talk about. It's going into a family film, so cool. you can. Um, no, I, no, I don't think it's relevant. <laughs> I was just going to talk about something someone said on one of Adam Buxton's recent podcasts about virginity being viewed as uh, sort of like sexual deviancy. It's like because it's because it's unusual, it's seen as being just as weird. Yeah, yeah. that's a really interesting People with really strange kinks. Yeah. Um, and it tends to make people, uh, you know, like view you differently, like view you as though you're a bit of a, of a deviant. Well, so. well, seeing as you did that, I will jump into Harold and Maud, and yeah. you can you can cut it out, Tom. Um, we used I studied this when it was part of a film theory class that I, I did this in, and we watched an amazing film called Harold and Maud. It's one of my favourites about um, uh, a young man named Harold who's obsessed with death, who falls in love with an octogenarian named Maud, who's yeah. kind of obsessed with life, and. Uh, at the risk of spoiling the film a little bit, their relationship goes to the point where they, they end up becoming more or less a couple, and, and that includes a, a sexual relationship as well. And uh, we were kind of discussing how, I mean, Harold is of consenting adult age. Uh, Maud is, yeah, she's 80, but she's as spry as can be. And this is, this, is a com this is a completely innocent relationship based on pure love. What is it that makes us uncomfortable and what was interesting is if it's the reverse I'm not saying we don't find it slightly gross if an 80 year old yeah. guy went out with yeah. 
uh, a 21 year old woman yes, they do yeah, yeah but it would still it's still i think a lot more acceptable yeah. than the other way around and i think part of that's good old misogyny but i also think it's partly um an 80 year old man can still conceivably have children and the yeah. idea is that you you want to reproduce yeah. Maud cannot reproduce so that taking that reproductive function of the relationship poses a challenge now this is all frightfully interesting but just to tie it back into the podcast i guess what we're going to hopefully be looking at in this is uh, maybe not quite to the extremes of harold and Maud, but how certain family films can actually build their success on subverting yeah. uh nuclear family uh yeah dynamics yeah what are the types of family film okay um well, when I did my uh, 10 minutes of research for this episode, um, I typed family film. I typed the family film into Google, and it came up with a film called The Family from a few Yeah, years I got ago. that as well. Yeah. In my 10 minutes of research. And so then, uh, so then I had to delete the the, and, it, and then I got the children's film Wikipedia page. Oh, um, you had the exact same experience. Yeah. I think um, what's interesting about the term family film uh, is it can simultaneously be the subject of the film or the audience of the film. Sort of like how YA is targeted at teenage girls, but also normally it's about teenage girls as well. Yeah. But it's not always about that. You know, and it's not... Family films aren't always about family. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So we have to make a distinction between films about family, which can have <clears throat> individual tropes, but... I don't know, the family film is a sketchy idea of a genre because in that you have Indiana Jones mm -hmm. and Christmas with the Cranks, yeah. right? So let's... <laughs> um, so do you mind me reading out what, what it says on the Wikipedia page about... Do, yeah. uh, so so they, they try to draw a distinction between the children's film and the family film. They have a definition which appears to be supported by the BFI, the British Film Institute. They say... A children's film, or family film, is a film genre that contains children, and it has a hyperlink on children, so people can find out what children <laughs> means, um, or relates to them in the context of home and family. Children's films are made specifically for children, and not necessarily for the general audience, while family films are made for a wider appeal with a general audience in mind. Children's films come in several major genres like realism, fantasy, adventure, war, musicals, and literary adaptations. So, what do we agree with that? Because you were saying you think there is more of a separation between children and family films. Yes, I mean, I, I think if you hear children's films, you do think of animation, and you do think of quite simple animations, definitely of simple stories. I mean, I've not seen the Shaun the Sheep movies, but I think that would be in the realms of children, a lot of the Ardman stuff, so like Arthur Christmas, probably a bit more on the children's side, mm -hmm. like sort of high-pitched, cute voices, lots of running around and bright colours and stuff. Um, ah, I thought Arthur Christmas was actually a really quite clever and actually a really right. good... It is about a family. Yeah. Uh, it's about uh, Santa Claus's yeah. family and all the interesting... Uh, dynamics in that yeah. but it's framed around much more of an adventure film and I right. thought it was quite clever as well it's also about traditional Christmas well we're going to get on to Christmas films yeah. later um, I wouldn't put I, okay I haven't seen Shaun the Sheep movies mm. either but in terms of sophistication I actually did think Arthur Christmas was was up there a bit, a bit personally more, a bit more okay cool but there are films like 
what you're describing that yeah. are sort of yeah massively of course the were rabbit i'd put in like children's films like would you or maybe not I don't know. Ooh. We're having a conflict over oh. Hardman so, right now. So, I mean, here, here we go. Like, our, our thesis is complicated already by, <laughs> by subjective viewing experiences. So I think what is important is the intention of the filmmakers. You can't always tell what the intention of the filmmakers is mm. because, some t- you I mean, always, uh, the intention of the filmmakers may be different from the intentions of the yeah. uh, trailer editing studio. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. It's, it's how you perceive it. So for children, simpler. Um easier themes to grasp probably mm. like or no themes at all like being selfish is bad yeah uh whereas with a family film uh it's it's just that little bit more complicated yeah agreed and uh, if we have if we take something like the smurfs yeah the recent smurfs adaptation this is getting into classification of childhood characters that was uh, a previous podcast we did yeah listen to episode two guys um but that you could say is principally targeted at children under the age of six, mm-hmm. but they squeeze in these kind of shoehorned adult jokes as a kind of, yeah, we know you're struggling mm-hmm. <laughs> sort sure. of thing. So it's not really a family film, but it wants to make it self tolerable yeah. for the adults in the room, so to speak, rather than creating a sort of uh film with a relatively wide appeal sort of adventure film that everyone can get behind with a sort of universal appeal to uh you know different emotions that, yeah i I, I think a really successful family film is working on multiple levels yeah. to engage sort of like an optical illusion engage different audience members in different ways mm-hmm. um and so i'm speaking about finding nemo for example um there's a message in that for children about overcoming disabilities and working as a team but there's also a message for adults which is far more profound about trusting your children to be their own person Mm. so it's simultaneously about both of those things and those two themes complement each other but the child's going to relate to the bright colors and the fun characters and when the bird farts and they're going to (laughs) learn that if they have a disability like if they can't remember things, if their brain doesn't, if they've got a mental uh, disability, if they can't remember things like Dory, that's fine because there's, there's ways around your disability. If you've got a tiny fin like Nemo, you can still contribute. Mm-hmm. And the adult takes on this, this, this separate, but, you know, slightly more complex mm-hmm. theme. About the, so the different characters going through their different arcs relate to the audience in different ways. Mm-hmm. What's really interesting, just seeing as we've gotten on to Pixar, is um, thinking about what I think is Disney's most, maybe you can contradict me on this, ad- adult film or grown-up film. Um, it's Toy Story, mm-hmm. I always felt. It's, it's the only one rated parental guidance, as far yeah, as I know. Yeah. Maybe it's not the only one. Uh, you can leave me a message in the comments if I've got yeah, that yeah, wrong. Yeah, yeah. But actually, what's so clever about the the message in that is the the feelings that Woody has towards Buzz are very transferable for children and adults but it's actually handled in quite an adult way mm. um it's because he's he feels he's being he feels insecure and replaced and has a kind of existential crisis that if you'll bear with me if, if you think of Andy as the number one person in Woody's life he's almost like Okay, I know we've got the, the potato heads who have a romantic relationship, but I'm going to assume generally toys don't 
get married and stuff. That's his, it's almost like a spouse to him. Yeah. And when Buzz comes along, it's his, his partner has been taken away. There's a real, yeah. very adult jealousy of he, he needs to get rid of him. Um, but there's also time. kind of underlying for children when you, a lot of the magic of the film for me is the idea that your, your toys come to life when you're out the room. And it, it makes children think about um, the toys they neglect. Mm -hmm. And, oh, maybe my Teddy does feel bad when I replace her with you know Barbie. I, I, I feel guilt when I throw away a toothbrush. <laughs> I, think, I think Toy Story has fundamentally fucked me up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I will anthropomorphize anything. Yeah. I've used the, the spouse analogy, but also if you think about, like, your place at work. Even, like, if you, if you have a, a role in life and then suddenly it's usurped because your, your company changes structure or a new guy in a, in a suit <laughs> comes in and uh, he's from HR and we're going to do things differently now and your, your boss, who, who used to give you all the promotions, is now all over this guy. Um, it appeals to that sense of workplace jealousy as well. I mean, I think I've laboured my point, the point, but it's, it's actually... Um, but kids could identify with that too in terms of your best friend at school goes off with someone yeah, else. absolutely. Uh, but Woody's, uh, his anger and his ir irrational uh, backlash, he, he does terrible things out of sheer petty jealousy uh, in a very adult way, I feel, yeah. more no, than yeah. kids would react. So kids would go off and, and cry and feel sad, but... That's a good example of going beyond the nuclear family, then. Mm. Yeah. You were going to say I something. I mean, yeah, no, I, I think one thing that's so clever about Toy Story is that the toys simultaneously work as a metaphor for children and as parents uh, because it, it certainly within the hegemony of that world of the, the, the of the toys room you know Andy is he, he is the he is the parent in a way because like, like you were saying you can see the, the sort of the replacement syndrome that, that, that uh, Woody goes through is kind of like when, when you have a younger sibling and suddenly all the attention isn't yours anymore but also um, I think one, one reason that adults, particularly adults with small children, do enjoy the film so much is because it's like that sort of psychological theory of like having a second childhood. It's like experiencing the world fresh and new through the eyes of your child. Mm -hmm. And that's quite literally what happens with the toys is that they come alive because of the child's belief. So it's like... Because the, the the toys are performed by adults, they're performed by Tom Hanks and by uh, mm -hmm. uh, Tim Allen, so so they are adults. <laughs> you know, like re relating. <laughs> Tim Allen is just a trigger word for us. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's it's like they they are enjoying the second child. They 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 live for uh, experiencing the world through the child's eyes. So they're both parents and children, and that's the two audiences for the film, isn't it? That's completely fascinating when you consider what's written later in that same article, yeah. um, which is about the difference between children's film and family film as being the difference in perspective that the film presents, whether it's the perspective of the child specifically mm -hmm. or whether it's a, a, the, just a sort of general kind of look at this family and their dynamics. Mm -hmm. sort of thing if you're considering it that way and it even frames it as a difference between American and European cinema more generally so it says um, according to the BFI the, this Basil Getz this researcher the term family film is essentially an American essentially an American expression while children's film is considered to be a European expression but the difference between the two can be seen in casting methods 
In American family films, the search for a child protagonist involves casting children that meet a specific criterion or standard for physical appearance. In contrast, European, European children's films look to cast children who appear ordinary. And similarly, in American family films, the adult cast can be composed of well-known actors or actresses in an effort to attract a wider audience, presenting narratives from an adult or parental perspective. Um, uh, uh, They they say a a fine example of a family film is Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, which if it were a European children's film with a similar plot, the title would be something like Sis, Dad Shrunk Us, explaining that European children's films are told from the child's perspective. Um, Because of these differences, American family films are more easily marketable towards domestic and international viewing audiences, while European children's films are better received domestically with limited appeal to international audiences. Yeah, I'm going to... Can I put a cat amongst the pigeons a little bit and put out that when we talk about films that are children's films exclusively, we tend to think of quite patronising examples like, um, you said, Shaun the Sheep, um, Postman Pat... The movie. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, I don't know what else. Some other adaptation of whatever's on CBBS right now. Um, actually, I think it's fair to say there are some films that are children's films, but and they are kind of exclusively for children, but they are complex in the way mm-hmm. and different in the way that children's psychologies are. And unless you're an adult who really can remember what it was like to be a child, it's not really f- for you. And I think one author, actually, who absolutely nailed this all the time was Roald Dahl. Mm-hmm. I would personally argue, just off the top of my head, Matilda is more of a children's film than a family oh, yeah. film. Do you want to go into that a wee bit? Matilda is, the more I think about it, um, if I had to make a list of like top ten books that have changed my life, and I've read a lot of books, <laughs> uh, Matilda's like one with a guaranteed place on the list. Um, Matilda has an extraordinarily um, and quite controversial message, if you think about it enough, about a girl who is born into a family who are fundamentally not good people. And she, at the end of it, she chooses a different family. She, Her teacher, who also was born into a family that hurt her very badly, adopts her. And it's a uh, book almost that's I <laughs> know, right? Oh no, don't make me cry. <laughs> but it's uh it's but the strange thing story. is you yeah, you'd think it would be really devastating, yeah. but he does it with but, but the truth is, if you are a child who's born into a family that doesn't love you for whatever reason, and what's really interesting about Matilda is her parents aren't abusive per se. Her dad doesn't hit her, her her mom doesn't doesn't um do anything like that either. He's they're just detached, they're just mean they're very they, selfish yeah, yeah they don't mm. under they don't understand her they're they're anti-intellectuals they're just not it's, it's not so much they're not good parents they're not good people she was born into bad people or or not good people um and she doesn't uh she's not a quivering abused child she it, you know the whole the whole scenes with her getting her own back on her father are very funny um, and they're also very, very justified. I can't remember if this line is actually in the book, but I, uh, in Danny DeVito's adaptation of the film, there is a, um, there's a bit where uh, he says, uh, when a person is bad, that person deserves to be punished because he also plays the father in the film. And Matilda, it's that that teaches Matilda, hmm, he'd meant to say when a child is bad, but he'd actually said when a person is bad, and that told her that she could punish her parents. I think in the book she just decides uh, you're going down after he puts her down for the umpteenth time and then she goes to school and there's this other 
horrendous authority figure. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Matilda's a real, a real mishmash of ideas. When I look at the book, it's a very, I mean, that's not utterly positive way. It's quite a strange little book because I think what he started out doing is he wanted to write Nicholas Nickleby a little bit. There's, there's even comparisons about, I, I think it started with the school and somehow it became about this little girl who was really intelligent, yeah. like almost superhumanly intelligent. And then maybe the parents came in later on I don't know his creative process. I could be completely wrong, but I think he started with I want to write. Uh, I want to have a Wackford Squeers woman uh, headmistress, and I want to. And it became this extraordinary story about intelligence overcoming mm-hmm. the cruelty of uh, of brutality. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but at its end, underneath this, what it says about family is that it's a story about a girl, a little girl who rejected her family. Her family rejected her. But she rejected them right back, mm-hmm. and she was right to do so. Brilliant. I haven't read Matilda for years, but the, the Roald Dahl book that I know back to front is Danny, Champion of the World. And what I find interesting about that is that it begins as a set of, uh, you know, childhood stories like bedtime stories, as Roald Dahl liked to write and liked to tell and where a lot of his books came from. But it ends with a direct address to the parent who's reading the book to the child. And he says what a child wants is a parent who will be creative and imaginative and and will uh you know do things for them and make life exciting yeah and i've always thought there was in the best of Roald Dahl's books they are about uh about the special bond between the generations on the types of family film we've do we sort of agree that it can essentially encompass basically every genre other than yeah. maybe horror and yeah. erotica. Uh, although Monster House won an Oscar. Oh, okay. Coraline. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, I stand uh, yeah. <laughs> corrected there. Uh, all right, then it's it's okay. Yeah. Pornography. Uh, probably not. That's a that's a genre. Probably that probably not. Okay, quite... Tom, you've won that point. Yeah. Well done. Thank you. Yeah. That was Thank good. You. <laughs> well, ar- well argued, sir. Yes. Uh, I went and looked at The Guardian's top 50 family films of all time. And in order to try and pick out a general definition, I focused right in on certain specific things that they say about each of those films, certain little key phrases that point to something to me. So things like funny with an important message at heart. Charming, and these are things they're saying it about in individual films. Potent mix of comedy and thrills, dazzling animation, iconic, funniest film ever, cheerful vulgarity, joyous, uproarious. You'll need to stockpile the hankies. Instructional film designed as entertainment, wild, off kilter delight, bold, strange, raw, and tender. Teen classic, too cool for school, slapstick with real substance, sumptuous epic, coming-of-age love story, beautifully drawn and undeniably moving, beautifully sympathetic, breathtaking battle sequences, chirpy song and dance, unforgettable tunes, looks tenderly and understandingly at childhood, undeniable optimism and open-heartedness, playful, sweet and smart, irresistible adventure romp, gloriously athletic musical. Um... And then in terms of more universal messages, when they talk about Disney Pixar's Up, they say Up has reduced many an adult uh, many an adult viewer to tears, although youngsters seem to be altogether less affected by this masterful little memento mori. There's plenty else to distract them, they say, 
from the hand from the fanciful idea of a house borne aloft by billowing balloons to talking dogs, slapstick giant birds, and thrilling airship battles. The adventure is so buoyant it carries along weighty issues of regret, memory, and mortality without losing altitude, a perfect balance. So, on the one hand, you have films which are fundamentally at its heart, like what you were talking about earlier with Toy Story, able to appeal. No, it's Finding, Do- Finding Nemo. Not Finding Dory. That's a shit film. Finding, Finding Dory, Nemo. Yeah. Um, you, uh, as being fundamentally composed of, uh, the story in and of itself has wide appeal to all ages. Mm-hmm. What they're talking about there is more like a balancing act, where you've almost got a film of two halves, which... Uh, are not that interlinked. The, the, the little things like to distract are thrown in there for like out of obligation almost. Mm. And I don't think that's actually the case with Up. I actually think they're underselling it. Yeah. Um, but 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 it's interesting to me the idea that you kind of pepper a children's film with things that appeal to adults, or you pepper an adult film with things that appeal to children. Yeah. Appears to be an emerging theme there. I think that's an amazing point, and I want to just sort of talk about it a little bit more. Yeah, so we were talking earlier about the Smurfs, and if you've listened to our classification episode, mm-hmm. which is episode two, um, Tom and Eva were very interested in how these films are very, very, very simple uh, junk food stories, but uh, unskilled uh, creators throw in pop culture references or vulgarity to sort of appease adults. Yeah. Sporadically. <laughs> appease is a good word. Yes. Um, but then on the, other, the other, on the other side of that, the argument that they made about Up is one thing, I suppose. I think what's really interesting about Up and, say, The Incredibles is that those are films about adults. Oh, yeah. Mr. Incredible, his, his emotional journey is, is not only the centre of that film, but it reaches out in every single way into the motivations of the villain, the motivations of his children, like his, his inferiority complex and him sort of missing being a parent and the way he has to grapple with his legacy um, are themes for adults. Mm-hmm. And yet, there's the aesthetic yeah. appeasement of children. Yeah. So that's almost the opposite, isn't it? Yeah. Where yeah. I think I think you you can watch The Incredibles at the age of fifty and get just as much from it as you do from The Born Ultimatum. <laughs> and that's I mean yeah that's just a yeah. sign of good art. But um, yeah, yeah, it's sort of the reverse. So I'd say maybe Finding Nemo and Toy Story are slightly more successful family films yeah. because of, of the, the incredibly cohesive way that they combine the way that they relate to the different audience members. Exactly. Because either it can be... Because obviously all films, different people take different things from them. Mm-hmm. Star Wars, to some people, the, 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 the themes of it will resonate mm-hmm. with them in some way. And to others, the battle scenes are awesome. Yeah. And that's the main thing they take from it. With adults and children, obviously adults and children are also different people, but they're treated as fundamentally different gra- uh, demographics. I think Pixar realized, and many other filmmakers have realized, they don't actually have to be. Mm-hmm. You can just treat them as two individuals taking different things from the same yeah. Yeah. piece of art. Generally speaking, they appeal to fairly universal emotions. Mm-hmm is what I take from that big list of yep. descriptions. 
But generally speaking, they're quite mainstream, mm-hmm. mainstream in their appeal. Uh, could I tell a little anecdote? Of course. Um, I fundamentally agree with your definition, but I think there is also a third category of family film, which is films that within a specific family that would not otherwise be classed as a family film, somehow that become family films nonetheless. And this can really be anything. So when I was about 13, 14, and I was starting to get into films, uh, my mum took me to the Glasgow Film Theatre, which is the art house um, cinema in Glasgow, and we went to see Citizen Kane together. Um, And most of the the other audience was, um, as you would expect, in an art house cinema, like on Saturday. It was people on their own or maybe couples, generally older people, film buffs, the odd student, that kind of thing. But when the house lights came up at the end, I actually saw another mum and her daughter sitting there, but her daughter was about eight or ten. Um, I'm not great with kids' ages. And the little girl just turned to her mum at the end of it and went, well, that was good. <laughs> and that was just a mum who, I guess, wanted to share a classic film with her daughter. Um, Citizen Kane contains absolutely nothing unsuitable for children. Uh, it's not, however, what you would think, I think because it's about, it's, it's a character study of a, uh, of, of a man who builds an empire and loses it and, and all the rest of it. Um, it would not generally maybe appeal to, to most children, mm. but that's not to say that... That they uh, can't enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, that sometimes what you, what you show your children, um, you, can, you could... Different films can mean different things to, to different children. There might, yeah. there might be some children, like that little girl, for whatever reason, is, uh, was invested in the downfall of Charles Foster Kane, <laughs> for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, Certainly when I was her age, I wouldn't have taken the narrative on board. But I would have enjoyed the scenes and the yeah the sounds and the yeah yeah no exactly I I I don't think so Indiana Jones that's classed as a family film in many circles but I don't think Steven Spielberg when he came up with it uh, said to himself I'm going to make a family film sure hmm. so maybe the big difference between successful family films decent ones and ones you know the kind of like the, the Postman Pat the Movie sort of ones, is whether how they set out to define themselves, whether they're defined by their story or whether they're initially defined by the genre, like we're going to make a children's film now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know, maybe that's what results in some of the more forced elements, of some of the ones we deride. Yeah, Steven Spielberg is a, is a fine director and has made some very sophisticated work like The Colour Purple and Schindler's List. Um, but I think what actually makes him so good at the... Um, at many films that, while not exclusively, do fall under the bracket of family film, is that there's a there's an, auth- an authenticity, and I think he at himself is uh, he he's an, he's a man who is kind of a child at heart. Um, a lot of his yeah. a lot of his films are about like father son relationships, which I think is a very big motif in his his own life. Um, and he really understands the uh, the boy and his dog genre, which yeah. which et basically. Uh, is uh, and he, I think he even as a grown man, uh, embraces that there is still a, a boy inside him who who is a little bit lonely and who, because uh, I've heard things about him like he still has movie marathons and he's a big gamer and stuff like that. <laughs> um, and I think Steven Spielberg makes the films that he wants to see. I would be very interested to ask the people who made Alvin and the Chipmunks, who made the Smurfs, who made the adaptation of The Cat in the Hat with Mike Myers. Is this a film that you would have enjoyed uh, with your kids? Exactly. Yeah. It's like when you ask the big tech people, 
Well, it's somewhat off topic here, but it's like when if you ask the big tech people like Tim Cook and Mark Zuckerberg, would you allow your children to use this gadget, which you are actively mm-hmm. saying can be used by children? They always say no. I think you probably get the same thing from those filmmakers. Yeah. Well, one thing we haven't really sort of dissected is is that idea that you just put forward about Indiana Jones being a family film. Mm. And I suppose we should talk a little bit about why that is, because the original Indiana Jones films are, are brutal. There's oh, know, God, yeah. murders and, and gunshots and, you know... Melting faces. Sort of melting yeah. faces. And so another, another little franchise I want to throw in here is the Pirates of the Caribbean one, mm. which, being produced by Disney, yes, I think... You, you can expect that to be a little bit more family friendly, and certainly, I mean, it was made what thirty years after Indiana Jones, so it was going to just, just like business wise, I think they honed a little bit about how to do mass appeal by then. Um, but even in the Paris the Garbian films, like people getting, you know, skewered with swords and getting throat slit and stuff like that, and and so. I think the reason that, that we are choosing to like see these big adventure films as family films is because of the viewing culture around them. It is expected to have five parts of the Caribbean films on in between Christmas and New Year, Indiana Jones. <coughs> it, they're the kinds of films that parents show their children when they reach the age of seven and they think they're old enough to, to enjoy it. Um, it's beyond... Uh, exhausting seeing uh, you know the latest uh, Lego advert for uh, another white man looking at his baby and saying look I'm your father Um, yeah you know like these films are packaged and distributed with the intention of being shared by families Mm -hmm. second question why do family films need to have morals or rules. Um, I, th- I guess it goes as far back as like uh, the appropriation of folk tales uh, into being something that was viewed as being for children. Uh, often there was sort of uh, very simple messages attached to these folk tales in the form of fairy tales. Uh, mm-hmm. You see, you can see our episode seven for more discussion on that. Go listen. Yeah. So, so certain aesthetic traits of, of fairy tales like uh, talking animals and stuff like that have survived in children's films like Bambi, like uh, Zootopia, a very simple moral tale about uh, multiculturalism and uh, not, not being a racist bunny. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Same with children's books. Yeah. Uh, you know, oh, you need to look at, like there's a whole book and it's like the bat is upside down Mm-hmm. on the tree and all the other and he says oh look at that weird triangle he looks at a mountain and he sees like the mountain is upside down so it's like a triangle with a pointy mm-hmm. end at the bottom and all the other animals see the mountain as being a triangle with the peak at the top and then they all have to learn to understand the bat's perspective <laughs> on the on the on the mountain that bat so, is why we have brexit yeah exactly <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> not not all opinions are the same thomas <laughs> Some of us are hanging out of trees upside down. But Stephen, the Earth is flat, so oh, that's a good point. You yeah. know, like yeah. no perspective is, is ever. You inhaled pointedly earlier. Were you going to make a point about the bats? About the bats, I yeah. wasn't. Uh, no, I, I think the bat made his own point splendidly. Yeah. Um, I was thinking 
Um, about False equivalency. Without delving into to episode seven too much, I was thinking about how if you take um, stories like Hansel and Gretel, Little Red Riding Hood, um, they're very dark, sinister stories. Mm-hmm. Like you have children being abandoned in the woods, mm-hmm. woods, um, and finding a you know again, what, what does that say about parents? Mm-hmm. You know, there's all sorts of moral questions thrown up with parents here. Uh, in Little Red Riding Hood, um, there was a lot of um, symbolism of the time read into a mm. uh, young woman keeping themselves yeah. himself um, and the symbolism of the red cloak and all the rest of it. Um, and it's an, it's an interesting to me that when I encountered these as a child, the moral, the steadfast moral of both those is don't talk to strangers. We really like to, for, for some reason, a lot of family films feel the need to force uh, not so much interesting moral questions, mm-hmm but a singular moral message Mm -hmm. that quite often is reduced to don't do something. Yeah. I think the simplicity of the message is, for me, one of the things that differentiates between family and children's films. Mm -hmm. Mm. Um, If the message is, it's like, you know, our little uh, Pekingese has learned to share after 90 minutes of going on an adventure with a toaster and a fork. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> write it down Stephen it's going to issue your multi-million dollar oh yeah <laughs> build that empire it's complete yeah okay I might need to take another I'll need to do another take for that where I don't laugh at my own joke no I think that's what's so good about it um, um okay so the yeah if at the end of our 90 minute film uh, the Pekingese has learned to share because of his adventures with the toaster and the fork <laughs> It's never not going to be funny. No, no, it's okay. The first take is fine. Cool. Um, Then that's just not going to give adults the sustenance they need to, you know, to go home and really reflect on life. I would open it up to as well, is it wrong to give singular messages that are very as simple as sharing and <clears throat> don't do this and what i would say is i am not a I, i'm not a parent but if i was a parent i like to think i wouldn't be a child-centered parent and that i don't think i'm the kind of parent who would be like let me tell you why i'm angry or uh what do you want for dinner tonight i'd be more do you want a or b mm-hmm. these are the options i like to think i'd be that way i am not uh, saying that you should not have that children do not need to operate within rules for their own sake because it's just confusing and unfair if they don't but sometimes we instill um steadfast rules generally about being kind being nice being mm-hmm. polite uh as uh, thumper's mother said to him if you can't say anything nice don't say anything at all um mm-hmm. and uh sharing mm-hmm. that sharing, are good. are good but actually fundamentally don't translate to the adult world a mm-hmm. lot of the time and kids notice that yeah they so, notice hypocrisy so if i can just bring the tone down so much okay <clears throat> when uh donald trump became was elected president of the united states i remember seeing an interview with um i think it was a, a news panel and a man saying today is a really hard day to be a parent because we tell our children Bullies never prosper. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't lie. Don't cheat. Mm-hmm. You you know, and that is in direct contradiction to what is so evident in the world. Mm-hmm. 
and maybe my argument is not don't these steadfast it's fine to instill these aspirational views but I think when your children grow older it's worth kind of enlightening them to actually the truth is I mean I, I, it's not it's not yeah. the, the norms that actually people live by because one of the biggest one of the biggest disappointments of, of my life and I, I wasn't a naive I was pretty emotionally intelligent kid but nonetheless when I left high school there was part of me that sincerely believed uh, bullies and anti-intellectuals were were done now and what I've learned is that actually bullies and everything else uh, it gets worse in the adult for world. many children they, they just come to learn that um yeah they do I'm, I'm not i'm not denying that but but then again there is also this reinforcing of um when we think of heroes and villains it's getting better now i think with the blurring of the lines between heroes mm-hmm. and villains but there was a time where there's there's a good person and there's a totally there's a and uh, i mean Doug Walker, I know we slagged him off hugely. We, yeah, we, we cancelled him. Yeah, we did. <laughs> I'm going to uncancel him for two seconds. Yeah. In his review of the Lorax, he makes this really good point about how they present environmentalism, which is that the people, uh, it's not the, the people on the street who are uh, throwing their litter, who aren't uh, protesting the taking away of the trees they're complicit if it's envi- if you're making a point of it's something like environmentalism everyone's complicit it's the the bad guys are super evil with the eyebrows and, and, yeah. and the machiavellian last i think because i don't think you can die that even if children do come to learn those lessons there's plenty of people in this world who well cognitive dissonance is just everywhere and we see it on social media mm. People think they are better than they, oh, they are. Oh, absolutely. You have to introduce that idea as one of complexity. Mm-hmm. And you want to establish uh, collective responsibility uh, for the well-being of communities and of the world from an early stage. Absolutely. I'm all in favour of making these things a fair bit more complex than that person over there is bad for being bad for the environment while this person is being... You know, you want to kind of instill a sense of responsibility at the very least absolutely uh, and these films yeah like the lorax it, it's just about sort of like making it as simple and easily digestible as possible yeah whereas you can present complex ideas in a simple manner that's what the likes of pixar actually yeah. tell us I'm, I'm thinking as well rather than a simple idea in a simple way yeah i'm thinking as well of the a little trope in which occasionally rather than throwing the villain off a cliff, the hero goes and puts <laughs> and basically says, um, e villano, um, what's this really about? They do that in, in the Lego movies, that they, they, there's this uh, character, yeah. it's like Lord Business, and he's very evil because he's a businessman. He but, yeah, okay, Lord Business, that's, yeah. that's nice fantastic. Nice and parodical, yeah. Lord Business, what's this really about? Yeah. Um, and, and it turns out... Sometimes they turn out... What was it really about was that Lord Business has never been told that he's special. <laughs> <laughs> but what what then happens is that it's this message that if you reach out with kindness to to people that might seem evil or bad, mm. if you can appeal to them in a certain way, they'll they're not really bad after all, and they'll come round to your side. And I don't think that's true in real life. I think a lot of people, when you reach out, when you tr- try to be kind. 
Uh, some of them might, but I think most of them will just take advantage of you. Mm-hmm. Now, but here's the thing, before you write me off as like a horrible cynic, I still think it's very important that you tell children, but you should still try. Mm-hmm. Just be aware that you yeah. might not be able to change people who don't want to change. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, I think there should be more emphasis on you've g- never give up on trying these ideals, but just if you, if you accept it, you'll be more prepared for when badness does yeah, kind I know, of Yeah, I agree. More widely, though, um, we should separate out family films which whose central point is getting across a moral mm-hmm. or one particular rule in life versus ones whose story isn't necessarily about that, but it's still imbued, coloured by a moral or a virtue. Like, there are, there are morals within Finding Nemo. Yeah. Of course there are. Actually, no, no, no. Finding Nemo is more of a kind of here is the moral. But, but the story doesn't completely hinge on it. No. No, because you see what no, I mean? well, because there's there's more going on in that film. For example, the, all of the characters develop, all of the relationships develop. Yeah, uh, we see them solving problems, and uh, we meet, go on lots of different adventures, each with their own clever solution. Yeah. Um, yes, there are two very clear morals at the end of it. Yeah. Um, but you both could, of which are directly yeah. applicable to human beings, um, watching it. As well as to fish, of course. Fish could learn a thing or two. I get what you're saying, though. It's just, I think it just feels cheap if they haven't filled their film with lots of other nice storytelling uh, ingredients. Again, it's about starting intentions. Steven Spielberg won't have said, I'm going to make a family film and then make Indiana Jones. Likewise, the people who made The Lorax probably did say, we need to make a film which shows children a really simplistic version or an environmental yeah. message. And that would have been the starting point. The starting point was... After they we, said... We, we need to get some, some Honda uh, corporate sponsorship here. Oh, yeah. And we what's, need Zac what, Efron. What's the best matching story for this? And then... The, yeah, it's got to so, be Dr. Seuss's environmental parable. Y- yeah, that... that, that <laughs> Seuss loved his Hondas. That will have come first. Yeah. The... Let's... Uh, Honda, Dr. Seuss, fine. Yeah. And then it will have been story. When they sat down to write the story, yeah. uh, at the heart of this will be this moral. And even if the the approach wasn't that, the fact that it feels that way is a sign of a failure. Oh, yeah. 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 No, absolutely. And I think the Lorax probably does come under the category of we are separating them out of children's film rather than family film. Would you mm-hmm. agree with that? Because it's, yeah, because it lacks complexity. Of any kind, and mm. what is what is an adult going to get out of that? At least a half. A new Honda. Oh well, yeah. yeah. What, the only adult who gets a lot out of it is uh, the Honda CEO. Yeah. Right. yeah. I think I was going to say something about Danny DeVito, but it was of no substance. It was just literally mm. to remind everyone Danny DeVito was in that film, and even he couldn't save it. <laughs> Can you think of any good films, good family films, with no Danny particular? DeVito. Oh dear, the breakdown of the podcast begins. Um, any good family films with no particular discernible moral or rule that it's trying to introduce children to or families to? I was I was mulling over in my head, um, like just while we took a break there, I was saying to Stephen, um, 
I, I'm trying to think of this episode from the perspective of what did I like as a child. I'm also trying to think of it of the perspective of if I had a child, what would I like to share with them that I, that I watched when I was younger? And I guess because it's Christmas right now, I've got this in my, I've got this in the mind. Um, uh, I think The Nightmare Before Christmas is a really, is a really great film. It's one of my one of my favorites when I was a when I was a kid. And I was trying to think, is there a moral in that? Because the or is there a, a clear one or because um, it's a very creative story, um, if you've not seen it, about uh, imagine holidays were, were different lands and there's a skeleton who's the who's the pumpkin king of Halloween land and he uh, is quite, it starts off quite a, a typical character arc. He wants more, he's bored. Uh, and one day he stumbles on Christmas land uh, and he, uh, he decides to take over Christmas. Uh, but he does so in a way that for him is not intended as malicious. But he ends up kidnapping Santa Claus, uh, terrifying children, uh, ruining the holiday by accident, even though all he kind of wanted was uh, so, to live for a day. So I, I guess the moral is don't be yourself if you're a dick. <laughs> it could also be don't run headlong into a personal project right. without considering the mm, impact it may have on other people. That's a more nuanced, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, but interesting as well is that after Jack realises that he has uh, wrecked Christmas, traumatised and possibly uh, maimed a bunch of kids um, and blown the cover for Halloween Land, I guess, which never really gets... I remember that bit was a guy, policeman. Yes, ma'am, we've received your call. A skeleton is attacking you. <laughs> Just like... <laughs> I don't know if like the world's operated within each other yeah. before, but this policeman is just, he's, he really believes it. Anyway, um, when Jack is shot out of the sky by the army, he, um, he does have a moment where he sings a song and it starts off, what have I done? And my God, is he filled with remorse? Mm-hmm. How could I be so blind? And he goes, spoiled all. Shakespearean. Spoiled all. But then all of a sudden, halfway through the song, he goes, well, what the heck? I went and did my best. I'm the goddamn pumpkin king. And I need to save those people that are now in uh, in the claws of the boogeyman. Uh, so I'll be right back. Uh, and he goes and does that. So he returns to his position. So I had my moral earlier about don't run headlong into a project. Just be a little bit more self-aware. But at the same time, he then reinstates his role. Gets yeah. the ragdoll girl. Uh, is it so? But I would never say it was a film about stay in your station. You know, mm. don't just accept what you've got. It's so it, maybe it wasn't made with a with a moral, uh, yeah, an overt moral in mind. But I think, is I mean, you, you write like don't themes sort of just naturally present themselves to you as you discover the story? Yeah. They sort, of, they, sort of, they sort of come from the substance of, of your ideas. Even if You don't necessarily sit down and say, I'm going to write a story about uh, sharing is good. Yeah, you're not mm-hmm. not predetermined. Yeah. It just sort of emerges from an interesting idea. Yeah, at least the good one, yeah. I guess what I would say then is that The Nightmare Before Christmas is incredibly refreshing because it's one of the few family films mm-hmm that doesn't has uh, wasn't actually written with that sense of obligation. Mm-hmm. I mean, who knows? Maybe when Tim Burton wrote the script, he wasn't even thinking about children appeal. He just thought about what would appeal to him, getting back yeah, to kind of the, the Spielbergian yeah. thing. Um, but what I, what I think uh, is, is a shame is that so many children's films feel the need to, even if it's more complicated than just don't do this or do that or this is good and this is bad, uh, 
like you said, those those themes just unfolded themselves, mm-hmm. and they're interesting. And Jack, he's a he's a hero, but he's a he's an anti. You root for him, but you get that he's he's a bit scary. That's interesting for a child, you know. That's yeah. Home Alone uh, has no morals. Mm, it's we'll just get... an amoral film. No, yeah, it, it's it, it, it's chaotic neutral. <laughs> yeah, um, there's a li- there's a little bit of a moral of don't judge people by their appearance. It's the anti Stranger yeah. Danger movie. But is it fundamental to the film? It's, oh, it's, the old man. It, I forgot it, about him. It, it's fundamental to one of the subplots. Okay. I I th- I I understand what you're saying. Yeah, I thought and, I and thought I to myself. I don't think you're wrong. Uh, the only moral I could think of initially was don't fly off and leave your child on the own in your I house. That, I think, is the central theme of the film. Yeah, yeah. No, I was, was going to say, it's getting in, very in silly. Home Alone 2, that moral about don't judge by appearance, mm-hmm. uh, Kevin apparently didn't learn the lesson in the first film no. with the old man because he's terrified by Brenda Frickers covered in birds for some reason. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I love at the end of, of that film when Kevin's parents come to pick him up from the because he's in New York in that one because it's the sequel so they had to go bigger where do you go you go to New York uh uh the Wet Bandits by Extraordinary Coincidence were there as well. They've been defeated with the help of Brenda Frickers I add she saved Kevin's life that's his that's his uh the the uh, the outcast stranger that he establishes a bond with when he realises to get past her terrifying appearance of adorable pigeons yeah. whatever um but right at the end of the film he um his family is back at the plaza um, celebrating Christmas in a frankly offensive display of wealth and materialism <laughs> and he runs out into the, the snow where Brenda Frickers the homeless woman is standing with her birds he turns to her one last time middle <laughs> finger aloft <laughs> Do you know what, Stephen? That would have been more dignified. Yeah. Because what he actually does uh, is he gives her a Christmas tree ornament that he'll keep the other half of. She saved his life, I add. The wet bandits were going to get him this time. Uh, And he says, I'll never forget you. And she says, oh, Kevin. And uh, then he turns around on Christmas Day and goes to have Christmas dinner with his family at the plaza and leaves the homeless woman standing in the snow. With her Christmas tree oh. ornament, which I'm sure, yeah, that's all she needed. Another fucking bird as a turtle dove he gives oh. her as well. Oh my god, <laughs> that film's awful anyway. Like, why did you? Well, we said even Danny DeVito couldn't save the Lorax. Tim Curry couldn't save Home Alone too. Yeah, that says something. I think okay. we've pretty much established uh, why family films need to have morals. Um, well, they don't. I think. I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't know. Muppet Treasure Island has an overt moral. No, it's oh, just yeah. an adventure well, I've, film. I've, I've talked about a film that, like, so you should talk about Muppet's Treasure Island because I know that's your idea of like a really good. Muppet's Treasure Island is right good. It's right good, you guys. The songs, the score, the Tim Curry, the young Kevin Bishop, the regular sized Kermit the Frog. There is a sort of an idea of um, the relationship between John Silver and Jim, which uh, is. Is very interesting because in sort of true Stevenson fashion, John Silver is both good and bad. Like he 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 is the the, the duality of, of man. You know, mm. he 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 is both ruthless pirate king and loving father figure, mm-hmm. and he's both of, and and so that's really why that story is interesting. See, there you go. I I don't think in the same way that the fairy tale or the children's book. Are you know tend to traditionally have a moral at the centre of them? Uh, I don't think the family film has the same relationship sure. to it. 
I, I've sort of um, touched on what I think make, differentiates between good Pixar films and bad Pixar films. Um, and that is because the good ones are about coming of age, becoming a parent. Yeah. About taking responsibility for a child. So it's about childhood, but actually it's about caring for childhood. So you look at Monsters, Inc., like Mike and Sally are uh, coded as like these bachelor bros that live in their bunk beds, you know, and then they have to become, they have to take on parental responsibilities. And it's the same with the toys. It's the same with Marlon, obviously. Uh, if you look at Brave or Inside Out, that's uh, a nice sort of mother-daughter sort of relationship, or at least at least with the emotions. They're like carers, aren't they? Mm. Um, they've, they've, their lives are centered around the best interests of the child. Even Wally, um, even though it more sort of abstractly, it's an environmental message, and what the humans have to learn is to take responsibility yes. for their actions. And that's so, a real, that's a real yeah. example of the moral center. Yeah, and so it's like maybe not with all all the uh, Pixar films, but um, with the ones that are directed by you know the the, the big three like Andrew Stanton, Pete Docter, to a lesser to a lesser extent John Lasseter. Cause, <laughs> Let's face it. Yeah, he he had a lot. Of, you know, Bugs Life isn't that great. Cars isn't that good. Yeah, he's he's not had the same hit success rate as as the other two. No, he deserves a lot of credit for what Pixar is and what it started yeah. as. Um, but for individual films, maybe he was yeah. a little distracted with the running of the company or something. Yeah, like sure. That. But but I mean, even then, like the, the the films are almost like analogous for for for, for these men's lives it's because they were all young fathers at the times and they were all the the fathers of the, this this new art style that of the cgi animated film mm-hmm. and they were all um had they, they, they've all had to be businessmen as well so it's it's just like the, the, this this coming together of of, uh, of 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 their lives and business and art and technology um which are sort of expressed through the films themselves and that's why, in conclusion, Cars is shit, mm. and why people, and John Lester is cancelled, and why people <laughs> don't see that as being as good a film because it's not about family. It's it's it, it, it lacks heart. It lacks substance. Yeah, mind you, sells a lot of merch, so that's why there's three of those, and only two Finding Nemo's. I'm afraid there's only one Finding Nemo in my mind. Question three, what can we say about family films which have problematic representations of family dynamics? We're talking here about fam- family films that the core of their message, or the core of their conflict is to do with a family, generally a nuclear family um, in itself, um, which has been my observation that these are often the weakest family films, the least enjoyable for me, yeah. at least. Um, although I'm going to... I'm going to maybe go back and forth on this because you mentioned Home Alone earlier and I think Home Alone... No, okay, disclaimer, I love Home Alone. I watch it every Christmas. I think it's a great film. I think it's hilarious. Um, And I think, like, 9 out of 10. But if I was to take one point off it, it's that reinforced message about all that matters is that you're a family and you love each other no matter how your family treat you. So... Because um, what what's supposed to happen in Home Alone, uh, the kind of emotional arc beyond all the slapstick and uh, beyond the emotional arc of the old man who reconciles with his son, although, again, mm. families reconciling. Mm-hmm. 
um, is that Kevin at the beginning of the film um, is uh, he's fed up with his family because because um, they're they're like rich and whatever they've decided to go to Paris for Christmas and it's not just like an immediate family holiday it's the extended family there's about 15 people yeah there's 15 people in the house as his mother says Kevin is he's an eight-year-old kid he's a little bit annoying he's a little bit um feisty but the the treatment that he endures from his family in that first segment I mean his brothers and sisters it's not like uh playful like jostling it's like outright bullying you're a disease you're an idiot you can't do anything i'm gonna feed you to my tarantula it's just awful uh then there's uncle frank who uh when kevin when his big brother deliberately eats kevin's pizza the only one that kevin can eat so kevin will have to go without dinner when kevin finally loses it and shoves him and <gasps> knocks over some milk by accident his uncle calls him a little jerk and then his mum like tells kevin that he has to go up to bed and sleep in the separate room and that, that oh he's the it's him there's 15 people in this house and you're the only one that has to make trouble she says um uh, she's she's uh, completely, she's so uh, focused on this, she doesn't realise that the policeman standing in her hallway is actually Joe Pesci, one of the burglars, and didn't, didn't think to ask for his idea in. <laughs> um, and so what's happening there is that this eight-year-old child is being gaslighted and all the stresses of this ludicrous family holiday are being projected onto him. Uh, and Kevin then wishes, quite reasonably, I think, that his family disappears. And then, of course, he wakes up and they have disappeared because they're so awful they forgot him. <laughs> Just to add insult to injury. Um, and then, but throughout the film, what it kind of becomes about is um, his his mum wants to get back to him, uh, but he also starts to miss his family. And at the end in the, recon the reconciliation scene, it's, uh, well, you can be pains and I can be a pain too, but we're all together and that's what, you know, that's what matters. And it's, well, actually, no, his family, there, there's no apology from his family. There's no, oh, Kevin, you know, when we think about it, we were actually, we were horrendous bullies to you. Um, and there's this equal weight of responsibility mm. um, attributed to, to Kevin and the rest of his his family uh, forcing through this moral of families should just forgive each other no matter what, because mm -hmm. just keeping the nice, wholesome peace at Christmas is what matters. Mm -hmm. And I take umbrage with that. Yeah, no, totally. Uh, I just want to also say that the new advert for Google featuring Macaulay Culkin as a grown-up version of Kevin still doing the same things that child Kevin did in the house is fucking creepy. It's really sad when you think about, like, John Heard's dead now, so it's like his, his parents are dead. Yeah. <laughs> but he still lives in the house. <laughs> yeah. Still really, eats macaroni cheese. Really frightening. Let's talk about The Incredibles. Yeah, that's sort of the archetypal 50s American family, right? What they're showing there. Like, we could go on about... 2.5 uh, children, literally. You know, like, you know. Patriarchy. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a very, it's a very dude-centered film. Like, Mrs. Incredible seems to have her shit together. So we're, we're what about the second film, though? You've seen that. Yeah, I think part of the reason why the second Incredibles isn't as good is because Mrs. Incredible has her shit together, and so as a as an action protagonist, she's there's just less story to tell about her. Yeah. Which is which is why they sort of uh, veer off into like this sort of unrelated 
moral about everybody watching superhero movies. Mm-hmm. You're like, well, that comes from the aesthetic concept that you're making a... a the first one is, is a film about a family who look like superheroes. Mm-hmm. And so to make your central message, your central theme about an aesthetic element of the film is just less powerful. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure if Brad Bird had had the extra year that was taken from him uh, because John Lasseter is a creep, uh, so they had to switch around the Toy Story 4 and the Incredibles 2 release dates. Oh so a, a year of production was lost from Incredibles yeah, 2. Yeah, which is why the ending was shit and the rest of the film is brilliant. Well, exactly. I, I, I'm sure if you'd had that extra year, it probably would have felt more cohesive. Yeah. It might seem a bit picky of me and a bit SGW of me to say it's a problem that only men are allowed to have problems. But I think that is a problem because yeah. then your media is about men, it's about male struggles. Yeah. And it's not feminist really to idealize women, it's just a different kind of pedestal. Yeah. That's a really good point. Um, I mean, like, I love the Miss Incredible character. I, I think she ticks the boxes for being a good, interesting female character. It's just that there's not as much work put in mm-hmm. to giving her a struggle as, as there is for the Mr. Incredible character. Do you want to do Everybody Loves Raymond now, just because that's the sort of family dynamics thing? Uh, yeah, kind of. Everybody Loves Raymond is a sitcom, um, but I would I would argue it's a it's a f- very family friendly sitcom more so than say Friends or, or Seinfeld or other things coming out in the nineties, um, and the the general premise is is it's about this couple the Barones uh, played by Ray Romano and Patricia Heaton and they have uh, three three kids um, and they live across the street from Raymond's parents uh, who are um, kind of like your they're presented as the in-laws from hell. In the earlier seasons, it was more innocent. They were more of a kind of dysfunctional duo, the pair of them. But then somewhere along the line, it became that Frank is, yeah, he's a big slob. Uh, and he's a bit, he's a bit of a, he's, he's got uh, some of the old school uh, scraping uh, sexism, but he's just, he's just old and curmudgeonly enough that he kind of pulls it off. Um, but Marie, uh, Raymond's mother, became like this freaking mafia boss who was pulling the strings of her family in this, these terrifying ways and um, had what was very clearly a very, a very sick attachment to her, her baby son uh, because she has another son, Robert, who's like this, this poor 40-year-old guy. He's a police officer, but he lives with his parents. He's not very lucky in love. Uh, he's really tall, which there's a lot of jokes about how tall he is and how this is hard for him. <laughs> but as and he's like the forgotten child for some reason. Raymond's the apple of her eye, and the main tension comes from Marie and Raymond's wife, Deborah. Now, Deborah uh, should have run a mile, like roundabout series. I'm gonna I'm gonna be I'm gonna say four for sure. Maybe series two, the, the, the red flags were really there, but I would say she should have gotten the hell out of this crazy-ass dynamic. How many series are there? Nine. Oh, oh man. Uh, because Marie, again, it starts out that they mean well. Frank doesn't mean to break the washing machine when he tries to fix it. Marie, when she rewashes the kids and 
I don't know, does the does the, the cleaning again. To un, does, she doesn't mean to undermine Deborah's love, but then it became <laughs> something for it. No, it's very intentional. Um, she cannot get over that this woman married uh, her, her son. She's the only woman for her son. And around series six, they decided to, they had like a, a whole arc that lasted about four episodes in which Marie and Deborah finally fell out big time. Uh, Marie, uh, I'm not going to do the whole setup, but she did this, like even for Marie, this appalling humiliation of Deborah about how she can't look after her children in front of other people. Um, just, just unbelievable stuff because Deborah politely asked her to leave when Marie was getting the kids excited and she was trying to put them to bed. So Deborah's done, finally, right? Uh, and there's a, and Deborah, you know, Raymond's like, oh, can't you just make up with my mother? And she's like, no, Raymond, I'm not mad at her anymore. I'm just not anything. I'm just going to live my life. We're in this house. We can get through this if we're not talking. Uh, <laughs> uh, but of course, that's, that, and after that, it actually ended. They still hadn't made up by the end of the series. But episode one, uh, so they still weren't talking, but that wasn't the main, the main point of the episode. The main point of the episode was Robert joined a cult. Whatever. Oh, yeah. But what they do is to get Robert out of the cult, they play this prank where they pretend that Robert's being completely brainwashed by the cult and they're just so worried about him. And and all, everyone's like really scared. And then Raymond shouts at the two women, how can you help Robert when you can't even talk to each other? And then they fall, look at each other and go, I'm sorry. Oh, no, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. No. Whatsoever. Oh, <laughs> Um, we again, just, it's just that. to bring us back. Like, <laughs> sorry, go on. No, sorry. I'm sure you had a, a culminating point to make. No, is that what you're asking me for? The culminating. Well, point? no, no, no. I'm just, I'm just going to ask you. Um, is it an example of somebody writing? So I know it didn't start this way, but is it an example of someone actually writing a difficult, messy family dynamic successfully without misunderstanding what it is that makes? Family dynamics, unsuccessful or strange. My big um, bugbear is I don't mind you writing happy families like The Incredibles. I let The Incredibles off because even though they argue, there's no pretense that they're like an unhappy, dysfunctional family. What I don't like is when people write uh, a happy person's idea of, an, of a dysfunctional family. Right. Um, and it's very yeah. transparent. Um, but to bring it back, that's not my issue with Arabella Raymond. My issue with Arabella Raymond is now I get why Deborah can't leave because if she left, that would be the end of the show and they had nine seasons. But there is that same equal parting of responsibility that they were both at wrong and they should just cast it off and and get on. That is that I think is wrong. Yeah, Marie does not deserve to be forgiven. I, that was an amazing comparative essay between Home Alone and Everybody Loves Raymond, and I I feel like I learned a lot. Yeah, I've never seen Everybody Loves Raymond, but I feel like I have now. Yeah. <laughs> that was good. What about characters who have to sort of shrug off appalling behaviour on the part of their family, because everyone is ultimately culpable for the failure of the family, and therefore, you know, like the family unit has to be kept together at all costs, that sort of thing. This is very much in the nuclear family category. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's a, we're all family at the end of the day is the sort of end point of so many uh, mainstream film stories. Yeah. Uh, so what about those films where there's a kind of undue pressure on a particular member of that family who isn't responsible for any breakdown 
to kind of be the one who repairs everything. What about those particular problematic elements? I think we've touched on that with both the examples, but I, it can go further, I suppose, where um, there was actually an episode of Family Guy where Meg, who was almost like a parodical version of the, the, the gaslighted, scapegoated mm. member of the family, actually realises that it's through gaslighting and scapegoating her that the family functions and she accepts her role as the lighting rod. Oh, my God. Um, but because Family Guy did it, it was in a... I don't, I don't get offended by the episode because it's, it's horrendous, you know, but the, the show knows it's horrendous. Yeah. Uh, and it gave Meg a kind of dignity that she didn't have before. Um, but, of course, you're talking about examples that that don't do that. That are that are kind of glossed over and intended to be innocent rather than yeah. comedy that recognises the problems there. Let, let's open this up to more a, a kind of the family stays together at all costs. It, it, it's not always to do just with somebody who's being like, scapegoated. It can be to do with it's best if the parents stay together. It's best if mom remarries. Um, everyone needs to constantly aspire to this family ideal, whether that means staying in an un happy or married with problems that are, <laughs> you know, that are clearly not going to be resolved by the, even when the credits roll. I've said before that I really like Matilda for that reason, because it did what I've never seen before. It said that, and like I said, Matilda's parents are not abusive per se, at least not in the worst way they could be, but they are the wrong family for her. Maybe they're not even oh, that yeah. bad people. I mean, okay, her dad's they were a criminal. The right family for Mike TV. Yeah, that's it. They were the right family for their son. They're not yeah. bad to Matilda's brother. No. But she just didn't fit in, and she she found the family. She chose her own family, where it, which goes completely against the grain of you. You can't choose your family. You're you're stuck with them. You've got to make the most of it. Well, no, she didn't have to make the most of it. She made the most of it by getting the hell out. Um, mm. As a as a a mainstream moral even though it frustrates me because I think this forgive your family no matter what is, is very problematic and causes a lot of unhappiness as we're seeing increasingly with... I mean, we have a whole new language now that didn't exist when I was a kid, that didn't exist, God, maybe five, ten years ago about emotional abuse and g gaslighting is a huge yeah. word. Now it's made it into the dictionary um, and about family changing structures as well you I, know I, I didn't know what gaslighting meant before like a few weeks ago so <laughs> maybe we could just put a little definition in yes so what is gaslighting um you, do you want to define it or should i uh it's consistently trying to convince someone that what they've witnessed they didn't witness yeah. That's quite a specific case, though. Do you want to widen it out? Okay, it comes from... The term actually comes from an Alfred Hitchcock film called Gaslight, in which a man tries to convince his wife he's crazy by moving the furniture, little things like changing the clock time. And then when she says... She points it out, he says, no, you're, he, he makes out that it's all in her head and um, tried to drive her insane. I don't know if he succeeds. I've not seen the end of the film. So it's transferable in the sense that if you have had... If you have a... I don't know a mother who said horrible things to you as a child and you go and you confront her or a father who who hit you or whatever and you you say this is this is what happened can you i want you to take responsibility for this i want you to you know uh and they turn around and they say something i don't know say something like um i never hit you that hard or you're remembering it that wrong or oh you had a hard time what about me did you ever think of this it's like right. making people doubt the perception of their reality yeah by consistent yeah 
insistence that something it's, is... Or conveniently forgetting something the next day. Yeah. Like, what's wrong? It's a new day. Yeah, we're yeah. over that. Okay, maybe you're... Well, why aren't you over it? We're over it. That's, that's gaslighting. So it makes, it makes you look petty, even though you're the victim. Yeah. Yeah. So Kevin in Home Alone is gaslighted in the sense that people say to him enough times people, that he's the problem and he yeah. starts to believe that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, good. Sorry, uh, listener, if you already knew. No, but, no, it's uh, not. I, I thought that might be quite helpful. You're right. It is. It is it's, important to yeah. define. Um, um, oh yeah. So what? What I was leading up to um, was we have a whole new understanding of these sorts of things, and there's also so much more awareness of what families can be. Families can be two dads, two moms. Uh, a dad and a mom and one of them maybe used to be a dad and one of them used to be a mom. You know, we're, mm. we're opening it up. Uh, I still don't think we're over the stigma of single mothers, uh, but I think we're, we need to get there. Um, but here's the thing. I understand why there isn't yet a mainstream message of, hey, sometimes your family aren't just your family, they're people. People on average are kind of lousy. Statistically, <laughs> someone in your family is bound to be a little... Well, you know what I mean? Statistically. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah, delete that. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Statistically, the listeners to this podcast, a decent chunk of them are awful people. I understand why the mainstream message is not, has not been pushed that your family, for some children, families are not a good thing. The family mm. they were born into were not mm. good for them. Yeah. Yes. And I think the reason that is, I think there's a market for it, but I get why people haven't really taken it up because families are communities Mm -hmm. and they are the small communities upon which our larger communities of towns, countries and institutions are built. And so if you, they're like bricks. Families are the bricks that form the walls of the of the communities that keep us our identity safe as a whole. And the cement yeah. is love. <laughs> yes. But if so then, if you question the inherent positivity, the positivity of the function of families, the function of the brick, mm-hmm. it makes us uncomfortable because where do you go from breaking mm-hmm. down the brick? The whole structure falls down. Mm-hmm. And that's why uh, it's like pulling out the essence of humanity structure if you start saying families are not necessarily an inherently positive thing. You're saying that this is a socially constructed idea that families are the bricks rather than that this is actually how yes, society I am. works or should work. I'm also saying, though, it's uh, it, it, I don't have an alternative structure that I could think would function in any other way. I'm not, you know, oh, I'm, yeah, I'm not yeah. arguing with theology. Yeah, There's yeah. a reason we, we live in these groups. Yeah. Um, I, I don't have an alternative. I'm simply venturing. I think this is why it makes us uncomfortable. Mm, yeah, I think you're pointing to something quite systemic there that is reflected in a lot of these family films. We were going to mention Christmas films because, guys, it's Christmas. And one recurring image in the Christmas film is the orphan child. Orf- I mean, orphans are interesting uh, because they appear as the main characters in so much... Mm-hmm. Uh, not even, I mean, child, child-friendly child stories. Yeah. Um, the Disney heroes, uh, very often orphans. Harry Potter, orphan. Mm-hmm. Oliver Twist. Yeah. Um, and I think part of that is, it's the adventure element. It's, it's quite exciting for a child to see 
what it could be like to live without the structure in place and the safety net in place. Mm-hmm. And they could be like Alex Ryder, you know, they could become a spy or, or a wizard. But orphans who are missing that component of the parents, you could compare then to single mothers who are missing an essential element of the family. Yeah, it can work the other way as well. You kind of single father films like um, that thing Whoopi Goldberg was in. Where, um, single father films, I mean, they're generally, generally played for the cuteness, aren't, isn't it? It's like, it's like Tom Cruise is so old now that we can't match him up with a 22-year-old uh, as his love interest. So maybe Tom Cruise is a father to yeah. a very cute blonde girl. Yeah. You know. And then you've got... By which I mean sweet, you understand. Yes, not, of course. Yeah. And in the poster, it's kind of ambiguous as to whether she's the partner or the daughter. Or there's the Dwayne Johnson holding right. two babies, not quite knowing how to change yeah. either of their nappies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, they're both going at once. Uh, where's the stop shitting button? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what film Oh, you know, the tooth fairy and, like, uh, mum's not here, she's working. His dad doesn't know how to family. His dad doesn't know how to family. Uh, Further reading, gang. Episode three. Episode three. Um, But, but like, that's another example of, oh, so so a a child without the parents is to be sympathised with because it's not the child's fault. A single father is to be laughed at because he... Also, can't fulfill the role. Also valorized for, for his, his, his yeah. bravery efforts. of doing the woman's work. Exactly, of changing that nappy. Yeah. God, how can he even put up with it? Only in what those a brave films. brave man. Exactly. Only in those films about a comic single father do we have to face up to how nasty changing a nappy is yeah. or the prospect of being weed at in the face. Yeah. That only becomes this kind of dirty, nasty prospect once it's the dad doing it, right? And then <laughs> Then when it comes to single mothers, as you said, they're, they're just to be hated because, you know. So, what are some examples of single mother? Uh... Um, well, not hated, but just sort of disrespected for, like, as you said, like, they need to want. You want to talk about Miracle on 34th Street for oh, a second? Oh, God. Well, um, they don't come out and say hated, but if you take Miracle on 34th Street, there's a consensus that if you are a single mother, um, you should be... You, you, no matter what you do, no matter how you try, uh, a child needs a father. Child needs a father. That's it. Um, and we've got this. Um, and, and look, I'm not trying to deny that there's, um, you know, situations in which fathers have been unjustly denied access to children. I'm not trying to deny that at all. But I would also say that uh, I take major umbrage with like the fathers for justice uh, discourse when they seem to really conveniently forget a lot, a lot of dads walk out. And deliberately don't come back but you know naturally it's just it's uh, I also don't like this and, and again this is going to sound full SJW but I'm legitimately uncomfortable let's with, face it we're pretty much full SJW yeah we are yeah, we, we should are. just embrace it yeah. um, I am uncomfortable with this a child needs a father because it excludes lesbian couples who are raising Absolutely. children who incidentally have an extraordinarily high success rate um, and yeah. in, in happiness of their kids very narrowly behind uh, two women, I think. Okay, I don't have the statistic for this. Maybe I should look it up or delete this bit if I can't find it. But I did read in, um, in an academic paper once: lesbian 
two women as the most successful uh, results. Wow, However, these results measured really interesting. very narrowly behind them by about one percent was two dads. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Actually, yeah. I think. Um, However, they measured that. It's probably you know. I mean, I, I, I also to problematize the idea of um, man and woman nuclear family being being this the bricks of society, which isn't what you were saying, but you were saying that's the perception. Um, children, as the old adage goes, are raised by a village. You cannot have a father. You can have two mothers and still find positive male role models yeah. in teachers, in society. I think everyone has, like, you can have a father and also look up to yeah. individual men. It's, Absolutely. It's but, it's so simplistic to to say that the only way to raise a child is is in that traditional way. A mum and a father, yeah. yeah. And and it it disregards mm-hmm. the heroism of single mothers as well. Mm-hmm. And to say that you know they owed oh, poor them they can no longer function. Yeah. Or it's deeply unsettling. They, That's more getting into the misogyny sort of arguments, but. But it's at the heart of a lot of this because it tells us something about how people perceive the nuclear family to work. Yeah, there's a if her husband's died or if her husband's left, um, she 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 deserves some pity. If she's gotten pregnant and been abandoned, it, there's far more a, a blame thing. Of course, if she'd had an abortion, that would have been uh, equally horrendous. So really, she's a she's a terrible person whether she keeps the child. Mm. and tries to raise it yeah. or whether she she aborted it she's a terrible terrible selfish woman either way she can be absolved if she keeps it if she finds another man though because at least then <laughs> she can from a distance she'll look like she should so do you want to expand on miracle on 34th street because this is a particularly interesting example yeah see i'm almost reluctant to do this because i've never heard anybody else make a complaint about this and as far as i know it's still quite a treasured family film we are talking about miracle on 34th street from 1994 with richard attenborough not um from 1930 whatever from what's with what's his face um <laughs> uh, oh yeah that one look it up i'm sure it's i'm sure it's better than, than the 1994 one um but in it you have a single mother character played by elizabeth perkins and she has a nice guy friend who I think is a work colleague who babysits her daughter sometimes and naturally... What a soy boy beta cuck, am I right? (laughs) 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 We laugh. We laugh. But people actually now say these things. Yes. Well, actually, Stephen, this is a nice guy who does get the girl. Because, oh, okay. Because he goes to Sam's... Sometimes you just need to wait long enough, right? Um, or, yeah, um, because after after he, you know, surprises Elizabeth Perkins with a marriage proposal, despite the fact they are no way official at this point at all, despite the fact she has already uh, kind of indicated numerous times she's not interested, uh, and she, she, the selfish... Oh. C- Dude, dude, you got to read those non-verbal cues. Yeah, uh, declines him. Uh, John Cusack goes to talk to Santa Claus, and Santa agrees that, like, what is this bitch's problem? She's right. She just needs some Christmas spirit. She's she's just she's scared to love again, and Saint Nick is gonna be is gonna sort it out. Um, the elves, uh, the, the elf focus group, put down your, your put down your hammer and your tools. Stop making the toys, and let's get on Elizabeth Perkins' um, aversion to getting married again. 
Um, and this is tied in with um, her daughter's wish. Her daughter is also pressurising her to get because her daughter doesn't think she's a good enough mum. She wants a dad. Um, <laughs> and her daughter. Little Mara Wilson's famous line: "Bitch, you can't get laid." <laughs> so Mara Wilson, when she's sitting on Santa's lap, says that she wants three things. I think she wants a house, a big house, because that that nice apartment in New York that her mother provided wasn't nice enough. Yeah. Um, she wants a father, hint, hint, John Cusack, and she wants, um, she wants a baby brother as well. Oh. It doesn't matter if her mother doesn't want any more kids because what happens at the end is she gets the house, she gets, uh, they're, they're now together, they're now engaged, um, and John Cusack's like, what was the third thing you asked Santa for, little girl? And she's like, oh, a baby brother. And it ends with both of them looking at each other like... <gasps> Uh, <laughs> and uh, you so, explain that to the listeners. Oh yeah, that did. wasn't good for radio. And Elizabeth Perkins kind of looking down, like, uh, I mean, she doesn't say this, but it is a kind of, oh Christ, I'm late. <laughs> like, look, so she's Santa, she's, got, she's pregnant. <laughs> so Santa has uh, has performed an immaculate conception, or maybe a not so immaculate conception. Exactly. I don't know. <laughs> You've got to read the nonverbal cues. Yeah. And but the moral is this is this is at Christmas a family has been created, as they should have been. Um, they are now whole. They are. That's so dodgy. <laughs> so many but I'm the only. I've never heard anybody else complain about this. It, well, it, it, let us be the first on spectacles. It's so gross. They totally take away that poor woman, woman's autonomy. It's <laughs> just like, yeah, you, you don't know what you want. You don't know what you want, single mother. It's so gross. Here's a child. That's what you want. That's more what babies. You want. More Make babies. Make you've got some good fertile years. Make more babies. Here's Santa's sperm. Go on. Hear those sleigh bells ringing. Oh, it's lovely weather for a sleigh ride together with me. Da 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 da. The last question is basically, how do the elements we've talked about change, if at all, when you consider Christmas films? Hmm. Like, because Christmas films are kind of all come under the category of family films, right? Yeah. Mm. Like, there isn't, yeah. there does not exist, yeah. apart from Die Hard. Well, yeah. Uh, but like... Even that is... That's, that's about, that's about uh, family in that John McClane gets back with his ex-wife, gets to be with his daughter, right? No? Uh, yeah, it's an of that. yeah, it. but it's Never not. It. Oh, I, can't, I have seen it, but I can't remember. You can't put dad, mum, eight-year-old son, and ten-year-old yeah. girl in front of that. Like, no, it's too violent. Yeah, so that's why I discount it because yes, because it doesn't have the family connotation. Yeah, but then again, maybe that's problematic of me to directly associate Christmas with the nuclear family. Uh, maybe I'm the guilty one Maybe you've one been here. socially conditioned. Maybe I am brainwashed and not yet woke. Maybe there's no true autonomy and we're all just being mind-controlled by Hollywood. Whoa. So there's a pressure to have a family at um, the heart of Christmas what? films and it's kind of uber-exaggerated at that point, isn't it? Because we are not yet at a point as a culture where we can dissociate... Uh, Christmas from family, mm-hmm. nuclear family, traditional family, just doesn't happen. Yeah, right? I would add this ties into um, just the the overall. I mean, I say unspoken about it. It is spoken about, but still quite 
in the fringes of the pressure of Christmas and that it isn't a very happy time. If I could, <laughs> if you could take it back to, to woman again, there's an awful lot of discussion about how, well, like Father Christmas is kind of Mother Christmas because generally speaking, uh, mums tend to, the burden of organising Christmas tends to fall to them. Not all families, but just enough that is worth remarking on. Yeah. And it's an incredible amount of pressure. I've never thought about it that way before. Under. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's why these films have a pressure on them to act as a sort of release. Yeah. So that even if they show a stressed out family or they show a Christmas that's almost ruined, um, generally the warmth of some kind of communal family love will save the day, uh, you know, to some extent. Uh, because that's what we tell ourselves at Christmas. Yeah. That all this stress. I mean, I'm not. Christmas has been very. I mean, I've got barely any responsibilities at this Christmas time, and, and I'm stressed buying presents, and and will people like them? And oh my God, that one still hasn't arrived yet. You know, I I've, I'm in the middle of that right now. Uh, I feel like I've Christmas has I've failed it in some way. Um, but uh, to use another example of a. a a Christmas film that actually kind of sold itself on being subversive and then I think completely lost the plot was Krampus. All right. Because the whole thing about Krampus was it's it's a mashup. It's a genre mashup. You wouldn't see horror, and I do mean horror, and mm. Christmas. But it starts out almost a black comedy about uh, families and their the, the in-laws and the, or the other, the, the, the uncle and the, who are all like rednecks and nobody gets on and their kids are assholes. Yeah. They're all coming round. And we get some proper dysfunction. We get kids who are like proper shitheads. We get, um, yeah. we get redneck dr- drunk granny. This is, this is the dysfunction I recognize. Thank you very much. Um, but what happens is because they they can't go on with each other, uh, they end up. Um, this isn't as stupid as it sounds. They end up invoking the wrath of Krampus, who is a German mythological figure, who uh, is kind of like the anti Santa Claus. He kind of looks like Satan. He's got goat hoofs and, and horns, um, and uh, they're they're being pursued by this monster. And then <laughs> uh, the film switches into. Uh, it kind of it loses the black comedy thread altogether, to my, much to my disappointment, and it, it went straight into uh, them being being attacked by the toys from Toy Story One that said tortured. Kind of, it just got. I mean, that's fine, it's, but they had to learn the lesson that it was because they were so mean to each other they couldn't get on that they invoked Krampus. They'd killed Christmas spirit because they couldn't get on. When really the reason they couldn't get on is because these are two families that should not be in the same room as each other. Yes. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Can I bring in uh, very quickly Deck the Hall starring Matthew Broderick and Danny DeVito? You, you may. Yes. <laughs> uh, so, and I want to compare it actually to Hugo. Those are two films which are about love between two people, maybe love thy neighbour, literally love thy next door neighbour in the case of yeah. ne- Deck the Halls. There's another thing that combines them. What it, which is? I've seen neither. Okay, cool. I mean, you're missing out if you want uh, the epitome of what is wrong with Christmas family entertainment with, with Deck mm-hmm. the Halls. Um, you know, you're missing out in terms of if you wanted to feel what it was like to be on fire just for the sake of feeling it. But <laughs> Yeah, so so basically Matthew Broderick has a family and they are good and they like Christmas and And they wear matching jumpers. Yeah, all that shit. And next door lives Danny DeVito and two young blonde women. Not <laughs> That's remotely his daughters. creepy. 
<laughs> oh, it's his daughter's. Look, but his, wa- his, his wife's a Playboy bunny, and they've had <laughs> two Playboy... Well, not a Playboy bunny, but she's a... Yeah, the, the goods are on yeah. show 24-7. It's disgusting. And basically, oh, Deck the Halls, he's got all these lights, these Christmas lights in his bag, and he's got too many of them, and he's going to... I've only watched a quarter of the film, that's all well, I can no, you're missing... to say right now. But... You're, what am I missing? But you're missing the motivation. Um, Danny DeVito, who's like this this little rogue. I mean, there's this joke at the beginning, like uh, I'm his wife, uh, who says to him, "I met Buddy uh, in an art class when I was modelling," and she's like, "Oh, was he? Was he the? Was he a student?" And she says, "No, they caught him peeping in the windows." <laughs> But so he's he's obviously a lovable, you know, little rogue, uh, sexual harasser. But it, but it's fine because a pint-sized Trump. <laughs> yep, that's right. And he works as a car salesman, and there's this unfunny joke oh, yeah. about how he could he could basically sell horseshit to a farmer. You know, he's a, he's got the gift of the gab. He's he's wooed this woman way out of his league. All the rest of it. He's got these two Russian model daughters. Um, but he wants more. That is about Danny DeVito's yeah. crisis. So this is my understanding of the film: is that <laughs> he wants his house to be able to be seen from space. Is exactly. what is what the film decided on. So <laughs> big lighting up reindeers and stuff, and then he, you know, puts the two plugs together and the circuit blows on the whole street, so nobody can put any Christmas decorations up anymore. Oh, and Matthew Broderick has to basically get to know this guy. They don't get on at all, but they have to kind of. Does the film, am I right in thinking the film sort of forces them together? Well, like, Well, what happens is that Matthew, Brod- Matthew Broderick's nice wife, who, um, again, see episode, uh, see episode three, Dad Doesn't Know to Family, see cardboard cutout wife section, uh, is kind of like, even when Danny DeVito sets fire to their Christmas tree, it's kind of like, he didn't mean it, honey. Let's be nice. I'll just go back to, to standing in a mannequin position until I need to say some other line. You know, that's... Yeah. Uh, that's why um, That's why they, they're, they're together. Yeah. So it's not necessarily there about you have to now love, learn to love a member of your family. It's about you have to learn to love your dipshit neighbor. <laughs> and in the case of Hugo, it's about a young boy awakening a passion for what it... Uh, in this man, played by Ben... Kingsley. Kingsley. Um, his love for film... Like reawakening his love for filming and allowing him to explore his passion. So it's a film about love in a deeper sense. And it's not just this simplistic, here's an asshole, learn to love him. So, <laughs> or, or here's your asshole dad, learn to love him. Here's your asshole child, learn to love them. Like, you know. <laughs> I like to see that one. That's Home Alone. Uh, but, uh, like, so. No, I just mean I'd like to see the one where they rejected the child. Well, I suppose I'm firing off unsubstantiated claims here, a little bit left. Learn to love your millennial son who refuses to move out and masturbates and plays video games all day. That's a Christmas film that needs to be made right now. Love thy incel. I'm pretty sure I met an incel. I think there's an incel on the course. He's oh. such a pig. He's such a pig. We're really getting into yeah. SJW territory. <laughs> anyway, mind um, you, mind you, let's let's not. You know, I know, I know that whilst uh, all incels are, are millennial broke men with no aspiration to masturbate a lot, not all broke millennial yeah. men who <laughs> masturbate a lot are 
And I, no think, I think ultimately the point you made there is the overarching point of this episode. And so I think we should end on that, that not right. ill incels are masturbating pizza lovers. That was what it was about, yeah. yeah. That's what we were trying to get to here. Yeah, just do Christmas films properly and just try and accept larger definitions of family, finding family elsewhere. And if it's the nuclear family, then make sure that they, they actually, you know, like each other and, mm-hmm. you know... Just stop being so goddamn problematic. Yep. Seen any good Christmas films lately? I think Arthur Christmas is a really good Christmas film. Because even it's about a family, and even though they fall out a wee bit, they're not pretending that this is like some fable about dysfunction. I I shall have to give that another try then. Mm. Yeah, Mm. because the priority is the adventure. Yeah. But the the characters are are woven in really nicely. There's a nice interplay between the... Christmas past, present and future, but in a kind of do unique know, way. Do you know there's a good a good Christmas story that has a very direct moral, but nonetheless I, I let this one away with it because I think it's pretty solid. Doctor Who series five Christmas special. Yes. Style. Yeah, starring uh starring Matt Smith. They don't make Doctor Who like that anymore. They really, really don't. <laughs> <laughs> They really, really don't. What was your answer? Oh, I was going to talk about this stupid old book that was written in Victorian times called A Christmas Carol, but... I, Shit, you I, like, stole that from Steemo. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> like, you saw Michael Gambon and that kind of inspired yeah. it. Uh, well, anyway, I, I let A Christmas Carol off mm-hmm. with some... That, I mean, that's kind of like family. To, but yeah. it has a sort of a more progressive, uh, non-50s idea of family is Scrooge embraces the community. Like he doesn't yeah. physically yeah. have to, uh, you know, go back in time and marry Belle. No. Um, he becomes an uncle to uh, yeah. Tiny Tim. And uh, in that way, uh, Dickens was a better writer than the guy who wrote Jingle All The Way. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we've not even touched on that one. Because what what's amazing at Christmas Carol actually is it's about a guy at the end of his life, mm-hmm. like he has he's ruined his life by yeah. behaving the way he has, and yet there's still it's still not too late. Yeah. It's a story of redemption. That's, redemption. That that's the one yeah. note moral I can actually take. Even if you're no yeah. excuses, doesn't matter how old you are, you can turn it around. That's a good. Yeah. that's a good moral. And it's not a kind of, you know, Lorax shove the the moral down the kids' throats sort of thing no. when they do the adaptations it's it's a nice complex but digestible story there's no hero in a christmas carol there's mm-hmm. just a man mm-hmm. who is not yeah. a good person at the beginning and that you are forced to spend time with them even though they're not likable and yeah. uh, and get and you you as a reader or viewer you're forced to give this man one last chance and he takes it and that's mm-hmm. very rewarding yeah. That's the same with Jingle All The Way, though. Yeah. Very, sim- this very man. similar tales. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. Jingle All The Way, it's a classic example. It's done better, I think, to be honest. What? In Jingle All The Way. What? What the, is... The story of, the, of the, the man we don't like, but we have to spend time with, and then... <laughs> Sorry. You've got a lot of unresolved issues <laughs> from when your father didn't buy you a paramount all the time, so I think <laughs> you need to... <laughs> I think you need to think about the perspective you're coming from here. Yeah, Jingle All The Way is a classic example of a film, of a Christmas film that pushes the message that family is is the key thing that matters uh, while not exactly renouncing materialism and pressure, Mm -hmm. which is the number one thing that gets in the way of families being 
what matters. Um, it's a bloody open contradiction. You yeah, know, it's 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 a beautiful it, it's a beautiful piece of work by Arnold Arnold Schwarzenegger. Who I mean, I can stomach Jingle all the way. I can enjoy Jingle all the way. I cannot enjoy Deck the Halls because I think it was you that said Tom. Like in Jingle all the way, Arnold Schwarzenegger is trying. Mm-hmm. He's maybe trying a bit too yeah. hard, but he is trying. Phil Hartman's trying. Oh, Rita Wilson's trying. No one's he's trying. A professional. He's, he is. Yeah, he's, he's, he's good. He's good people. And Danny DeVito is actually a really good actor. Yeah. yeah. He's a really good actor. Uh, he's wonderful. That's not directly about the family film. But, um, <laughs> but no, no, the, the, the last episode of Always Sunny in Philadelphia was stunning. Guys, we uh, will be back probably in the spring break. Around about March, April time, we will do another one. A wee Easter one. A wee Easter one, yeah. Yeah, we live in three different cities. Mine, in particular, is on the other side of the of Great Britain. Yeah. <laughs> so, so blame me for that we can't reconcile more. But we will, we're, yeah. not, we're not done with spectacles. We, we've got a few more things to put out there. Quite a few more things. So mm-hmm. watch this space, is all I'll say. Keep the change, you filthy animals. <laughs> I, I thought that was a little nice little... I was going to go in that, but... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, it's not relevant, but it's it's kind of relevant. It's just it's a quote that makes people will be happy. Yeah. They recognise it. So, what makes a good Doctor Who Christmas special, Tom? When the when the way it's been directed and stuff actually matches the intention behind the writing. Mm-hmm. So when it's like Peter Capaldi's One Last Christmas, yeah, they've got a story about dreams and stuff, but it's filmed as if they don't believe in any of the jokes or any of the ideas. It was the tone of it is really dark, but there's a sort of disparity there as well, isn't there? Because yeah. uh, there's so much light-hearted humour. Spectacles, a pop culture podcast, was presented by Tom Bird, Stephen Hyam, and Eva W. The series was created by Eva W, and the episode was edited by Tom Bird with Eva W. The music was conceived and composed by the presenters and performed by Tom Bird. Our logo was kindly designed by Sarah Savile and Thomas Smee. If you have enjoyed what you've heard today, then please find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or SoundCloud to rate, review, and subscribe for new episodes. And don't forget to connect with us through social media at Spectacles Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, or at Spectacles Pod on Twitter, or email us on spectaclespodcast at gmail.com. Our next episode will be about God knows what, and it will air in roughly Easter time. Thank you.